What's the secret to a happy life? For the answer, join us in Madrid from Thursday the 27th to Saturday the 29th of June for Monocle's fifth annual Quality of Life Conference. Head to conference.monocle.com for all the details and to buy your ticket. Monocle, keeping an eye and an ear on the world. You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of May 2019 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. We're having a little squabble with China because we've been treated very unfairly for many, many decades, for actually a long time. And China speaks highly of him. My guests Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton will be discussing Trump's trade war and the day's other top stories, including China's discovery that its investment in Pakistan is not universally welcomed, the decision of Silicon Valley's capital to ban one of Silicon Valley's innovations, and the heroic determination of one Swiss party to make politics dull again. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. And welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Peter Goodman, Global Economics Correspondent with the New York Times, and Isabel Hilton, CEO of China Dialogue. Welcome both, and we will start by considering the latest fusillades launched in the US versus China trade war, which US President Donald Trump promised some while ago would be easy to win, not the first such vainglorious statement uttered by someone occupying his office. Last week, Trump raised a bunch of tariffs on Chinese imports earlier this week, as is the way of the these things. China raised a bunch of tariffs on American imports, and now inevitably Trump is talking about further raising tariffs on Chinese imports. Um, Peter, when is this going to stop? Is any of this making any sense yet? It's making a lot of political sense, and it's not clear that it will ever stop so long as Donald Trump is in the White House, because there seems to be uh, a, a tendency uh, to listen to different camps and switch positions back and forth. I mean, the one consistent thing as Trump has veered between trying to satisfy the stock markets, I mean, that's the one sort of metric that he really understands and cares about by whispering or sometimes shouting on Twitter that a deal is imminent. On the other hand, he likes to listen to the nationalists who seems to have seem to have his ear, who have come to view China as as a real adversary. I mean, this is no longer just a trade dispute about you know, working out differences in the commercial realm, China in uh, the United States, uh, particularly in the Trump administration, is increasingly seen as a strategic foe that has to be contained. And uh, moreover, Trump seems to uh, be doing pretty well with his base, even as he hurts his base economically. I mean, these tariffs are hurting people in manufacturing in the United States. There are far more people who buy steel or go to companies that buy steel than there are people People go to work at companies that make steel. So these tariffs are hurting. And yet even amongst people hurt, there's a sense of thank you, Donald Trump, for finally uh, taking on the fight against big, bad China. That's good politics. This could last a long time. Uh, Isabel, how seriously does China take this? Because if, if there is one truism that's often uttered about the, the Chinese Communist Party is that they are capable of taking an extremely long view uh, of, of human history. And are they just at the point of just thinking... 
you know, we only have to put up with this clown for another year and a half or so, uh, and then things will return more or less to normal. Are they are they really that bothered? I'm sure there are quite a few people who are hoping that the next election, you know, produces a different result. But I don't think that is giving them entirely a comfort to wait it out because they too recognise that this is a strategic competition which will go on. You know, China has declared its strategic ambitions. It wants to, you know, dominate its neighbourhood and deny American access. It wants to achieve certainly domestic domination of 80% of advanced technologies by 2025. It wants to use Belt and Road to to spread Chinese standards around the globe so that it is in strategic competition, long-term competition. It knows that. Um, The nationalist elements in China are saying... The United States has always wanted to keep China down. This is just the latest iteration of it. And the problem for China is that that nationalist sentiment, which it has fed, the party has fed for 20, 30 years, could get so strong that it becomes extremely difficult to compromise should any short-term compromise be on the table. Peter, I want to look at Trump's preferred weapon in this war, which is, of course, the tariff. He has himself declared, I am a tariffs man. Um, Is it clear to you, as an actual economics correspondent, that Trump understands how tariffs work? He seems weirdly convinced that China is paying them. Now, I understand, I suspect, about as much of how economics actually works as, for example, Donald Trump does. Even I know that that's not the case. I think that if we take his Twitter feed and his television pronouncements at face value, uh, we can assume that Donald Trump uh, does not have a fully operational understanding of how tariffs work. <laughs> because, that, But that's quite worrying because tariffs, it's not complicated. Like I said, my, my benchmark for appraising economic concepts sure. is if I think I can understand sure. them, it's got to be pretty entry-level right. stuff. It, it is pretty entry-level. My, my, I mean, my accountant will tax. confirm this. It's a tax. It's a simple tax that's paid for by consumers and it's designed to uh, encourage consumers to go buy their stuff somewhere other than the country uh, that is facing the tariff when they export their goods to the United States. And uh, by the way, I mean, the other thing that Donald Trump seems to only have a loose grasp of uh, in this area is trade deficits because his ultimate scorecard seems to be uh, shrink the trade deficit. The tra- in, in the Trumpian view of trade, everything is zero sum. You know, there's a limited number of cars or pairs of shoes or whatever uh, can be sold in the world. And uh, if one of them's getting uh, made in China, then that's one that's not getting made in the United States. And it's as simple as that. So Trump has been uh, telling us that these tariffs are about shrinking the trade deficit. And in fact, the trade deficit has expanded fairly dramatically in the United States since he began the trade war. So, uh, you know, who knows how that's actually viewed. Uh, Isabel, if we, if we leave aside uh, the, the personality of Donald Trump from this dispute, is there an argument that some of the official U.S. demands are actually pretty reasonable, ending the forced tech transfer stuff, cracking down on industrial espionage, making it clear to China that if it wants to trade like a grown-up 21st century nation, it is going to have to do things like you know pay attention to intellectual property and so forth? Oh, completely. And of course, China says... You know, it's the when did you stop beating your wife response, you know, he said, oh, but we never did force technology transfer and we won't in the future. Um, the immediate argument is about how robust those promises were going to be, because what the United States appears to have wished is that China should um, embody them in law in China. 
since the party is above the law in China anyway, it wouldn't have made that much difference, but I guess it would have been a kind of symbolic victory, but one that would be very hard for China to accept that laws could be dictated by the United States for China. The longer-term problem, though, is that it's not just about those dodgy practices, which absolutely everyone agrees China has to abandon. But it's more about the kind of structure of the political economy in China. It's about the party state and protected state-owned enterprises and subsidies and how you, how you establish your dominance through, you know, nurturing national champions through a variety of means which are contrary to WTO rules and so on. Um, but the China, they're absolutely embedded in China. China's not about to change that. That is, that is really one model versus another model. It would involve China changing the model, and that's not going to happen. I think that they may be, I mean, going back to Peter's comment about this being popular with the base in, in the United States, so far, these tariffs haven't really hit consumer prices because they've been on things like steel. They may have had a moderate effect on washing machines, but they've been at 10% till now. And there's been some effort on the part of Chinese exporters and American firms who manufacture in China to absorb those costs, but they can't absorb 25%. So we will see once the 25% tariffs hit, we will see, you know, inflation. We will see consumer prices rise. And those people, you know, who vote, who may not grasp or who may believe what Donald Trump says, will nevertheless notice that their prices are going up. So I think there will, that it has a limited shelf life as a popular move in the United States. Peter, just a quick follow-up thought on that point on this subject. Is there a time limit on this trade war where Trump is concerned? Because it's not very long until he's going to have to go back and ask angry Iowa and Nebraska soybean farmers to vote for him again. Well, that's correct. And I think, you know, Isabel is, is correct to, to note uh, that the tariffs have not hit consumer prices and that does lie ahead. However, I mean, if there's one thing that we've learned about Trump and his presidency, it's that he has he is expert at generating a sense of partisan warfare and static that muddies uh, the field of facts preemptively such that when bad things happen, he's usually preemptively uh, set the base up to blame someone. It might be brown people coming over the border from Mexico. It might be uh, Chinese people in distant factories or Democrats going on partisan witch hunts, you know, what have you. And in this particular case, I mean, I will say having gone to Western Michigan, which is serious Trump country, uh, in December and spoken to factory owners who were already hurting at that point. I mean, who would say, yeah, these tariffs are, are really making it hard to get steel uh, at economical prices. I may have to lay some people off or sales are hurting. And yet almost everyone I spoke to in Trump country was saying, hey, we view this as a holy war that we can't dodge. And they praised Trump effusively for taking on a fight that, in their view, uh, other presidents have been afraid to wage. So, I mean, that kind of nationalist sentiment has been very effective for Trump, and the politics of fear have been effective as well. Okay, well, let's move along slightly, because the United States is not the only one of China's trading partners currently giving Beijing reason to wonder if there might not have been something to be said for the 15th century Ming Dynasty's policy of rigid isolationism. Portions of Pakistan have responded to China's monumental investment in their country with something less than full-throated and unequivocal gratitude. In Balochistan in particular, China's Belt and Road Initiative has ignited the ire of local separatist militants, not that this usually takes much. The attack 
attack on the Pearl Continental Hotel in Gwadar at the weekend was not the first assault on sites linked to the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, and it seems unlikely to be the last. Um, Isabel, the militants who claimed responsibility for that and other attacks, the, the Balochistan Liberation Army, and I think it's fair to say that they're not the most necessarily reasonable or amenable bunch of people. But nevertheless, in general, has China done a poor job of selling this to people of Pakistan? Well, fairly poor. I mean, it depends who, who you're talking about. It's sold it to the government and, you know, fairly effectively. But the Baluch don't like Islamabad at all. So, you know, the the, the Baluch... The, the list of things they do like is a short one. It's pretty short. They like they like gas, which they have quite a lot of. And, and, they, and you know, they're separatists. Um, they've been fairly... It's, this is a very long-running insurgency, or no, not one that's had a huge amount of attention from the wider world. And it has been pretty savagely hammered in the past. What's interesting, though, is this renewed economic activity represented by the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor seems to have kind of got them going again. So, hang on a minute, you know, if if these developments are to take place, this is, after all, our territory. And this is one of the problems that China is going to have to confront with the whole Belt and Road project, which is once you get fixed infrastructure running through very dodgy parts of the world, you have to think about defending it. And that's in particularly in Pakistan. I mean, this, the CPEC not only runs through Baluchistan down to Gwadar, which they plan to develop into a major um, energy port. A, a new Dubai, apparently. In, well, that's, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. Well, in, <laughs> I can't in, wait. Yep. In, in fairness, there was a time not so long ago when the idea of Dubai being turned into what we now Dubai know as Dubai was would have seemed fairly indeed. fanciful. Right. Um, but it also runs through um, a disputed part of Kashmir. And so, you know, it, what again, could, what, could go wrong? what could possibly go wrong? So the whole thing is pretty much hostage. And then, of course, at one end of it, there is Xinjiang, which, you know, where at least a million people are locked up in camps allegedly because of harbouring terrorist thoughts. So from beginning to end, it's pretty dodgy. And it's not the only one of China's kind of overseas investments that is potentially vulnerable. They, they, they own the world's second largest copper deposit in Afghanistan, purchased in a rush of enthusiasm about 12, 14 years ago, never developed because it's Afghanistan. But again, it's a big investment and at some point they will want to develop it. They have uh, gas pipelines and energy, the Shui pipeline, which goes through a, a very you know, difficult part of Myanmar, where, where until lately there were, you know, quite quite violent insurrections. So what is China going to do? China has not um, habitually had its uh, security services operating outside China, but I think this is, you know, if not already happening, is very, very close. We are going to see Chinese security guarding on Pakistani territory. We're going to see definitely Chinese security services in operation. Is a partial answer to the question I was about to put to Peter. On, on that point that this infrastructure clearly will require defending, how patient is China likely to be with Pakistan if it perceives that Pakistan is not doing that? Well, this is really an interesting test case of just how willing China is to involve itself in the messiness of the globe. Um, I mean, China has drawn some very ambitious lines 
on the map. I mean, Belt and Road, this collection estimated at a trillion U.S. dollars worth of infrastructure projects, you know, stretching from China across Central and South Asia to Europe, down to Africa, across the Middle East. I mean, this involves traipsing into some very complex terrain. And China's pitch in engaging itself with the rest of the world is, hey, we don't do politics. We're the pragmatists. We're not going to bother you with ideology. We're not going to bother you with environmental or uh, labor standards, uh, you know, in contrast to the World Bank. We're not the European Union with strict procurement rules, demanding competition. We'll just give you a check and maybe we'll tell you that uh, a condition of the check is you have to hire Chinese construction companies to come and do the work uh, because that's what's in it for China in part. But, you know, this is a wake-up call if you're the Chinese leadership that the, the world is a complex place uh, and, of course, as Isabel notes, the irony of projecting from Xinjiang, uh, you know, the part of China that is sparsely populated, uh, very much disputed with the, the ethnic minority Uyghurs viewing the Han Chinese as colonial uh, interlopers who've come come to just, you know, grab all the resources for themselves. And there's a very similar dynamic in Baluchistan. Uh, it will be interesting to see uh, whether China now pulls back or whether China arms itself and, and doubles down. I mean, certainly the appeal of getting to the Arabian Sea, that's a, a significant part of Belt and Road in terms of projecting uh, Chinese power and influence, paving the way to, to ship goods uh, from China to the rest of the globe. Just a final very quick thought on this one, Isabel. Is it imaginable that the Baluchistan Liberation Army or others similarly inclined could raise enough of a rumpus that China decides that none of this is worth the bother? Or is, is China just going to have, it, have its way come what will? I, I think it will have its way. What way that is, it might might get some adjustment. I mean, you might see, as you have in, in Afghanistan, you might see China, and indeed in Myanmar, you might see China negotiating with other people's insurgents. And, and we have seen a couple of cases of that. But China's not going to pull back from CPEC. It's a kind of big flagship project. There's not a lot in it for Pakistan, it seems to me, in this particular energy corridor, because what it's designed to do is get stuff in and out of Western China. This is not a market for Pakistan. You know, Pakistan's not going to sell anything in Xinjiang. So all it's got is, you know, in fixed infrastructure and a certain amount of trouble. It's not, it's not really benefiting Pakistan. Okay, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton. Coming up next, the home of high-tech bands, one kind of high-tech. On Meet the Writers this week, join me, Georgina Godwin, as I talk to Toby Faber of the independent publishing house Faber & Faber, which has been going for 90 years and remains at the forefront of British literature producing Nobel laureates and Booker winners, some of our finest poets, and is also responsible for one of the best-loved and longest-running musicals in the world, Cats. He's an author himself, and we hear about his novel, as well as the history of this illustrious family-run business. That's Toby Faber on Meet the Writers, premiering this Saturday at 1500 London time, and thereafter available as a podcast. Thank you. 
You're back with Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton. It is not necessary to be a full-blown foil-hatted paranoiac to feel a measure of unease at the possibilities of facial recognition technology, the high-def cameras which can map your face against existing images. In what will hopefully prove an instructive development, the single municipality most commonly associated with modern technology, San Francisco, has also become the first jurisdiction to ban facial recognition technology. Local law enforcement and transport agencies and so forth will henceforth not be permitted to use it. Um, Peter, the objections raised against it in this instance seem to hinge most of it being uh, mostly on it being unreliable. It appears to be especially unreliable uh, dealing with with women and not white people, strangely. But is is there a, a wider objection here to be raised here that it's just kind of creepy definitely i I mean anything that uh, pushes up the creepy factor in the u.s which is a country that takes its civil liberties i mean in a libertarian sense very seriously as we know from for instance the lack of gun laws uh, on the books uh does tend to engender a serious response and I, i think you know across the ideological spectrum now in the states is a sense that some um, some sort of abstract theoretical dangers that we've often talked about. You know, what if someone took office and they decided to abuse their access to records to you know try to visit uh, damage upon their political opponents? You know, those kind of once theoretical worries have gotten very real. I mean, Americans are aware, or some are at least, that they're living in a time when the president has threatened to use the Justice Department to investigate his political opponents. His attorney general is in the process of stiffing the U.S. Congress on a subpoena uh, to get access to a report on alleged significant misdeeds by the president. And, you know, it's always been creepy, this idea that the surveillance cameras are everywhere, the technological capacity gets more and more sophisticated. I mean, even just at the level of huh, how did Google know that I'm planning a vacation to, you know, the Sahara Desert? Uh, I mean, you, you, you couple that now with knowledge that uh, American employers know more and more about the healthcare histories of Americans. Uh, we, we've, we've learned that, you know, people get fired uh, when they get sick. Uh, and, you know, along comes a, a, a president who's, who's breaching norms uh, in terms of privacy and, and basic separation of powers. I think a lot of people are, are afraid of the authorities now. Uh, Isabel, one country which has embraced uh, facial recognition technology with notable enthusiasm is, of course, China. How potentially worrisome are the precedents thus far established? Oh, they are they are pretty worrisome. I mean, you know, I think China is very very high on the creepy index, the creepiness index, because you know you have you you do have these demonstration projects where you you know you have the public cameras in the street and you will have heard of the social credit system which is which is a, a, an attempt to engineer better citizen behavior so uh, you, there are there are clips online of uh, footage of a, a traffic intersection with people jaywalking and and you know they 
they can identify the people who are jaywalking because, of course, China has a complete bank of images of their citizenry for ID cards for official purposes, and they can match them up. And then uh, the, the, the malefactors are publicly humiliated. Now, that's a very minor example, but you can see very, very quickly that that escalates. And in Xinjiang, which we were just talking about, you can't buy petrol if you're, you know, and you have to present your your uh, ID, you have to present yourself for facial recognition if they don't match, or if your ID flags up some reason why you shouldn't be allowed to buy petrol, you can't buy petrol and you can't travel. Now, you know, that is part of, a, of an Orwellian surveillance state. And the question of reliability is obviously a big deal. There are there are police glasses where police stand in railway stations in China scanning passengers, again, in, in, looking for people who might be evading the law. And, and it, it gets flagged up if they think they've got a match and they detain a suspect. Once you have, you know, this is an, an iterative process, improving the reliability of facial recognition. It, 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 it improves with practice. The more you do it, the better you get. Um, it's also worth noting that China has sold this in Africa and is using those, you know, operations, those cooperations in Africa to widen the kind of racial, uh, the, 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 the capacity to recognize faces of different races. So China will, on a technical basis, be well advanced. I mean, I think far, far more than the United States. Well, we will follow that with what I think is a much more cheerful story, because while one needs only pay the slightest amount of attention to anything at all to appreciate the debasement of public life caused by the commingling of politics and showbiz, those of us who have hoped for a counter-revolt, an orderly and considered counter-revolt, obviously, by the forces of blandly efficient technocracy, at last have a champion. Switzerland's Conservative Democratic Party will campaign in this year's federal election beneath the slogan, Boring But Good and promising to return politics to actual policy and verifiable reality rather than the circus stunts and carnival barking recently popular in many democracies. Um, Peter, we were talking earlier about the the dwindling of uh, President Trump's first term and he is, of course, the, the absolute par exemplar of this phenomenon of people being unable to separate politics from entertainment. Um, is it possible anymore in the United States for a genuinely boring person to be elected president? It's pretty unlikely. Uh, I mean, look, Switzerland is a country of 8 million people where just about everybody's white and Christian. I mean, that's a smaller, less complicated entity to govern than London or New York City. Uh, there is that. I mean, the U.S., is a highly multicultural, complex society of 300 million people with social media and a lot of uh, smart uh, campaign uh, experts who know how to use technology and polls and uh, reality television, in the particular case at hand, to uh, appeal to people's sentiment. And that's proven to be uh, a very effective political entertainment social media complex. And uh, I, I don't see that going away anytime soon. Isabel, is is this likely to be the kind of thing that could only happen in Switzerland for all the reasons that, that Peter adumbrates there? Or, or, or might there be, I'm, this is massive wishful thinking on my part, a, a, a yearning uh, among the citizens of currently sort of... Um, 
what's the word, hyperactive democracies for a, a, a return. If there ever there was that period when things were just run by extremely dull, stolid, but competent people who you barely ever heard from. Well, I have to bring you the, the news, Andrew, that, that in uh, 1904, Yaroslav Hasek, the Czech writer, set up a party in a pub, actually, um, <laughs> and it was called the Party for Moderate Progress Within the Bounds of the Law. And this was. I, I wish to subscribe to their newsletter. Well, indeed, had you voted for it, I mean, they did it. I think they ran in one election in which they promised a pocket aquarium to every voter. <laughs> <laughs> but this was this was set up in response to a, a directive from the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which which ruled what became the Czech Republic at the time. Um, and in 1871, they issued a decree in which uh, the Bohemian Landtag uh, was asked to contribute to the contemporary constitutional order in the spirit of moderation and reconciliation. So Hasek set up this party, which then played a lot of jokes on a lot of people until he got conscripted into the army, ended up in the Red Army, and then retired to write the good soldier Schweik. So it didn't do his career any harm at all. Um, but I, but I, I think the Swiss, uh, the Swiss impulse really ought to you know, pay homage to, to its roots here. Uh, moderation and reconciliation, Peter. What what happened to those? When did people stop liking those things? Uh, well, uh, I mean, to take this seriously, uh, we've got problems that we've got to deal with in society. I mean, Switzerland has a lot less economic inequality. They've been very strict in in preventing migrants from from entering the country. I mean, it's it's a nice little club. If you're in the club, life's pretty com- comfortable. So, you know, how significant are the issues that get divide people? I mean, in, in large, complicated countries where, uh, I mean, look, the United States is a country where there's something like 40 million people don't have any health care. Uh, are, are, are those people just supposed to be very cheery about that? as they watch uh, wealthy people walk off with the largest tax cuts in the history of the of the nation I mean there there are there are true sources of outrage for people and uh, that outrage then is uh, catered to by uh, sophisticated messaging people and uh, I, I don't think we're going to run out of outrage unfortunately and therefore we're, we're, we're not going to run out of people who are stimulating it just as a, a, a final desperate attempt to shore up my thesis here, Isabel, is there any argument at all that the, the reason that Switzerland is like Switzerland is because it has boring politicians? Well, that's true. And, and no politician has, has a lot of power in Switzerland. That's also quite important. But, you know, you get these cycles. After all, Margaret Thatcher, who, whatever you thought of her, was one of the more exciting British politicians, was followed by is, John Major. That is true. Um, and there was a sort of heartily, hearty relief that for a while the noise had stopped, you know, and, and all we had to do was worry about garden gnomes. Well, Theresa May <laughs> being is not, bored. not that uh, exciting, but these are pretty interesting and exciting. These are not boring times. She, she, is, she is a dull leader yeah. in interesting times. Yeah, yeah this is not... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and on that paradox, uh, we reach the end of today's show. Peter Goodman and Isabel Hilton, thank you for joining us at Midori House. The show was produced by Carlotta Rebello, researched by Helena Jarit. Our studio manager was Kenya Scarlett. Music next at 1900. It's The Entrepreneurs with Daniel Bates. There's more on the day's main stories on The Daily at 2200. Midori House returns at 1800 London time tomorrow. I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you for listening. <laughs>